got no stranger. I think that's it. Oh, well. Come on, red light. Here we go. There it is. Okay. Okay. We got uh, Psalm 119, verse 161. Here we go. I'll start off with this. Okay. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Chin. That's the Spock. The Spock. Deal there. Two front teeth, sharp, press, eat, and number two. Uh, rulers persecute me without cause, but heart trembles at your word. I rejoice in your promise, like one who finds great spoil. Hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous law. Great peace have they who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and I follow your commands. I obey your statutes, for I love them greatly. I obey your precepts, your statutes. All my ways are unto you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious word. And we thank you that all of our ways are known to you. And uh, for the world, that's a very scary thought. But for the Christian, it's a wonderful thought. That we're known completely and holy and we're accepted just as we are because of the blood of Christ. What an honor. What a, what a blessing. And uh, how sad it is that so many reject that. And uh, Lord, we would just ask that... Uh, the word would go forth and that people would be willing to hear it and to respond to it and to apply it to their lives rather than turning away from it. And uh, Lord, we have um, great decisions coming up in the next few days in our uh, nation. And I would pray that uh, that would be something that the people of this nation would reject the way of wickedness. And uh, though we're not uh, voting specifically for a man, we're voting for an ideology. We're turning away, hopefully, from wickedness and uh, abortion and uh, the homosexual agenda which is being thrust upon this nation. We would pray that uh, right reasoning would be returned to this nation, that we would be willing to uh, expend ourselves and our energies and uh, uh, returning to you and to holding your word as sacred and to proclaiming you on every street and in our governments once again. Lord, uh, we would pray that this would be the case, but your will be done because uh, your plan is coming to its uh, fruition and we're just going to find out in America whether we're a part of the good side of it or the bad side of it in the days ahead. Mm -hmm. But uh, we would pray that uh, it would be on the good side of it. But thine will be done. We thank you for this time that we have allotted tonight and we commit it to you and we pray that uh, you would be glorified through our study of your word and uh, that it would be handled properly and that we would uh, uh, not stray from sound sound interpretation and context, keeping everything in context. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, last week I uh, mentioned that somebody, uh, you know, emailed me with uh, re a request for some help with her uh, um, information for her um, uh, college course. And... Um, I, I was really surprised at the response of people saying, hey, would you uh, talk about that? And I know some people right after class did that, and then I got emails. I got people asking me to email them. And so it, it, with your permission, and if anybody says, I don't want to do that, I'd like to at least go through really quickly what she said. It's only about 15 pages. So, uh, okay, let's do that. We're in Romans, but we're not going to go there yet. We're going to – this is what the lady submitted her um, – uh, course syllabus and her idea about Christianity and then she, you know, 
I, I don't know all the details. All I know is that this is what she submitted and I gave a refutation of it to some extent. So um, really quickly, um, I, I'm going to just read this and it'll take a little while to get through it, but I think you'll find this interesting is this is what is being taught in Americans uh, uh, seminaries and colleges today concerning Christianity. What's that? What's the course? Oh, it's it's just a course in, in, on religions, Religion. and one okay. of them is Christianity. Okay. She's giving a, a synopsis of religions, but with Christianity, it has been a polemic against it. Everybody else, she was just describing the faith. She's actually attacking it. So here we go. By the time I got to the end of it, I was literally stewing. And a guy asked me, would you email me the entire thing? And I did. And I told him, I hope you don't read any bad words, because I was that upset by the time I got so there. this is what the professor S Submitted, and then I gave my comments okay. to give to her. Okay. And she said, I don't want any theological uh, refutations of this. She said, I want a historical refutation of it. And so I established it right at the beginning that everything in the Bible is historical. And it, it, here, that, that, I went from there. So we'll go on. By the end of the fourth century, Christianity emerged as the dominant religion in the Western world. In this lecture, we will trace the origins and growth of this mystery religion that grew out of a small Judaic cult. Overview. Jesus, Yeshua, or Joshua of Nazareth himself did not write any um, accounts of his life. Jesus of Nazareth. No problem there, but you'll see why I stress that in a second. The, uh, did not, uh, himself did not write any accounts of his life. No problem. The four extant sources that survive of his teaching, the Gospels, were written after his death. The book of Acts, this is my comment, the book of Acts also includes his teachings, okay? She left that off. The earliest Mark was written about 65 to 78 AD. It's actually a little earlier than that. I did not correct that on her, and I should have. Um, it was actually, um, I think, 35 to 40. But anyway, I, I, I didn't correct her on that, and I don't know why. I read right over that until right now. Like all the books of the Bible, historians must filter through the details because these books were written for a religious, not a historical purpose. Here's my comment. This is incorrect. They are eyewitness accounts, which, although varying as any eyewitness accounts will, are written from a literal historical perspective. Luke, a Greek doctor, goes into great detail in his record, as he notes himself, and I quote Luke 1, 1 through 4, so that it is established that this is a historical account. And that way, anything you say any, anything that she says, you can't use theology in your rebuttal or in your response or whatever, it's not. It's history. Luke says, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good also to me, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write you an orderly account. It's an eyewitness account, and he gives names and dates. Let me take you some really quickly so that you can see... Um, uh, how precise Luke was. And I should have included this, you know, everything in 2020, but I was just sitting there trying to give a quick response, and it turned out to take a lot more than a, a short amount of time. But uh, um, here's what it says in Luke 2, verse 1. Listen to what it says. And it came to pass in those days that a decree, that's a historical note right there, went out from Caesar Augustus, that's the second one, that all the world should be registered. The decree is defined. Three, this census took place first while Quirinius four was governor of Syria five so all went to be registered in his own city then he starts with names Joseph Galilee Nazareth to Judea the city of David called Bethlehem registered with his wife it's it, just in a couple verses you have enough information that this woman should just be quiet anyway um, so the authors of the Gospels Matthew Mark and Luke and John these are her words now 
believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, Yahweh. So they are difficult to use as a historical source. Wrong. Um, I say, my comment, this is incorrect. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, therefore their acceptance of his words are what they base their literal historical account upon. Okay, keep getting back to the basics. Don't let people pull you away from the basics, all right? And the reason why I think this is important, rather than getting right into Romans today, is because people are faced with this all the time. How do you refute them? Go to the basics. All right, here we go. Um, uh, what we do know is that they were written so as to, this is her comments, uh, as to be transmitted to the Greco-Roman world, and that the apostles tried to spread the good word, I say literally good news is what it means. She says good word, that's what the gospel means as far as possible. Good news. Um, more gospels were written down. She's starting to refer to non-canonical gospels, the gospel of Peter and blah, 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 all garbage, the gospel of Thomas, because they felt it wasn't needed. And, uh, let me read it to this to you again. This is her sentence. More gospels were written down because they felt it wasn't needed. They thought the second coming was just around the corner. My comment, this sentence makes no sense. No. Yeah. So, um, it, it, why trust somebody that's this stupid that she can't even check her own work? Anyway, a major component of the Gospels is that the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth are in line with Jewish tradition. Um, in Jewish world of the first century AD, Jesus would have been a rabbi. No problem there. The vast majority of historians believe that Jesus of Nazareth existed. He is mentioned in the works of Flavius Josephus, the great Romano Jewish historian who refers to him as Yeshua, also known as Christos. In my comments, meaning Christ and which has the same meaning as the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah, okay, because she left that out. Um, Yeshua was actually a common Judaic name at the time, was her comment. I agree with that. Um, it's not anymore, but it was at the time. Josephus wrote about the origins of Christianity and the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is also found in the writing of Tacitus, the Roman senator and historian. Not only does Tacitus write about the Christians, whom he doesn't like, these are all her comments, but also confirms the crucifixion of Jesus under the Roman, under the governorship of Pontius Pilate, under the reign of Emperor Tiberius. This is all good stuff here. Um, finally, Yeshua is mentioned in the Talmud, who is also hostile to this impoverished, radical rabbi of theirs. There are various other sources that mention Jesus of Nazareth, such as letters, minor government, Roman reports, and the like. But all in all, the execution of a poor Jew in a far-flung outpost of the empire really didn't warrant a blip on the collective consciousness of most Romans. That's, that's probably correct. Um, hello, how are you? Um, we're going over something I talked about last week before we get into Romans. What most historians, um, she left the S off there, but anyway, agree upon, other than the fact that uh, Jesus of Nazareth existed uh, as a historical figure, was that he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist, and that he was crucified somewhere between 33 and 36 AD. My comment, he was crucified on 11 April AD 32, as evidenced by the dating of Sir Robert Anderson, who used the appropriate star charts of the Royal London Observatory for reference. This, in turn, is confirmed by prophecies from the Old Testament, which confirm this date. So, uh, once again, going back to history. During his lifetime, the province of Judea, her comments, was under the control of the Romans, as was Roman custom at the time. However, the Romans left most of the control of Judea to the Jews. There was a Roman prefect oversee affairs, Pontius Pilate, or Pontius Pilate in English. Uh, furthermore, the Roman uh, Romans had a puppet ruler in power, Herod Antipas. Jewish society fell along sectarian lines. The Sadducees, those of Jews of wealthy aristocracy, 
aristocratic class controlled the priesthood and as such had high social status. They placed a strict emphasis on law, written law, and cooperated with the Romans. On the other hand, the Pharisees were more liberal in their interpretation of Jewish law, contending that the oral law was valid since the temple and many schools had been destroyed. Learned men called rabbi could interpret the law, the basis for the Talmud. This was a more democratic system of learning and teaching, since it meant that only uh, that anyone could study Judaic law. Instead of it being hereditary, the Pharisees represented the common people, and the conflict between the Sadducees and Pharisees was really a class conflict. Furthermore, a third Jewish sect existed, although its number were much smaller. Who is she going to bring in? Anybody know the third sect she's going to mention? Yes, the Essenes. It's become very popular to try to push Jesus in that direction. Um, In other words, well, I'll get to it later. Um, The Essenes were a Judaic group that practiced communal living, poverty. They gave up all their money and property upon joining an Essene community. She's trying to settle a baseline here. Okay, asceticism, withdrawal from the world, nonviolence, and sometimes celibacy. Okay, here's my comments. This paragraph mixes apples and oranges. The Jerusalem Talmud was compiled in the 4th century, meaning A.D. The Babylonian Talmud was compiled on AD, about A.D. 500. Both were long after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The description of the Pharisees here during Jesus' life is wholly inaccurate. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees at Jesus' time strictly and fully adhered to the scriptures. Okay, Paul writes about that in his own writings in, I think it's Ephesians and uh, Galatians. I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Galatians and Colossians. He writes it three or four times. Anyway, um, so she's mixed apples and oranges. The girl put this on the, the board to be reviewed that the Talmud was written, and she came back and argued against that, saying it wasn't. So I went and sent the source of where it's recorded that the Talmud was long afterward, and I don't know if she ever responded or not, but she is completely wrong in what she's saying, completely. Okay, my comments. Um, uh, She said the Dead Sea Scrolls were written at an Essene community. I started in boldface, it is believed that the Dead Seas were written at an Essene community. This is speculation which has risen based on the placement of these scrolls, but it is not sure exactly who the scribes were for these scrolls. Just because it's there doesn't mean it was written there is my comment. Okay, her comment. It is in this political environment that Jesus of Nazareth operated. Was he in a scene? There you go. Probably not, but he seemed to be influenced by many of their beliefs. My comment. This is pure speculation without any actual evidence at all. The Essenes and Jesus had the same source for their beliefs, which is the Hebrew Scriptures. That their beliefs merged at some points is to be wholly expected. If two people read Edgar Allan Poe and then speak about what they read, they will, there will be obvious mergings of what they pick up from his writings. Okay? You got that? Just because people happen to believe kind of the same things, the Essenes had the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus wrote the Hebrew Scriptures. Of course, they're going to believe some of the things that Jesus wrote throughout those 1,500 or whatever years up until uh, the time of his advent. So um, here's a, a new section, Life, Ministry, and Death. Okay, she says, Jesus was born somewhere between 7 to 4 B.C. in the province of Galilee in the town of Nazareth. Now, if she can't get that right, you ought to take the entire course and just say, give me my A because you're an idiot, okay? Here's my, yeah, here's, here's my uh, comment on that. This is the most laughable statement yet. This is a teaching of the, you know who teaches that? Do you know where that came from? That's right, Jesus Seminar. Jesus Seminar teaches that. If you go to their website and take their stupid little test, and you put Bethlehem, they say, wrong. They don't explain why, but they just say you're wrong. 
Okay, here's continued. Um, the Jesus, this is a teaching of the Jesus Seminar, which has no basis in reality. The only accepted record of the birth of Jesus is anybody? It's right here. That's right. The Bible. Okay. So um, once again, these are my comments here. Um, it is very clear where he, his birth was. Matthew two one. Now, after Jesus was born in Nazareth. Oh, I'm sorry. It says Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Oh, let's go on to Luke two four. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to a city of David, which is called Bethlehem. While well, he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they went back to Nazareth. Oh no, I'm sorry. It doesn't say that. There, there, meaning Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them to be in the end. Anything they can do to twist the story of Jesus and to get people, oh, I thought he was born in Bethlehem. Well, that's been wrong all along. Now you've entered doubt into people's mind. And that is what she intends to do. And that's what the Jesus Seminar intends to do. And that's what every person that wants to diminish Christianity, because people aren't going to go read this anymore. They don't want to read this. They just want to be told what to believe. So you had something? Mike Micah, yeah, they, they, it's just citing Micah. He'll be born in Bethlehem. That's why they said, "Where is he going to be born?" And they went, here, right here, yeah. Wise right people know. Yeah, exactly. Wise people know. Okay, um, her comment: Galilee was known as an important Essene center. My comment: This statement is entirely irrelevant unless one is intending to force a presupposition into the historical account. It has nothing to do with Jesus, and yet she adds it in there. Uh, see what it, she, people are doing? They're twisting the narrative. Even even just by introducing something that has no relevancy, address it as such. It has no relevancy. Okay, um, in her comments, in Judaic tradition, he was a teacher or rabbi. He spoke Aramaic, the lingua franca of the Middle East at the time, and probably Hebrew. Okay, my comment, and certainly Hebrew. He spoke in the synagogues where Hebrew was the language used during the Sabbath instruction. So he had to have spoken Hebrew. All right, here's what it says, Luke 4, 16 through 21. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to say, so he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He spoke Hebrew. We don't need to go any further, but read the whole thing, 16 through 21. Her comments, the only two definite facts that we know about his life was that he was baptized by his cousin John and that he was crucified. Did you know those are the only two facts that we know about Jesus' life? Did you know that? Oh yeah. Because you couldn't possibly know that the miracles were really... Oh, that's right. Well, you can't know anything. You can't know anything about him except those two things. Okay, here we go. My comment. This is wholly incorrect. As the noted legal scholar, and this is what I told him, uh, you guys about him several times. I've probably done it in the Romans class, and I bring him up from time to time to, to shun people that say this type of stuff, to shut them up. Here's what it, my comments. As the noted legal scholar and principal founder of Harvard Law School, this was no dummy, Simon Greenleaf states, every document apparently ancient coming from the proper repository or custody and bearing on its face no evident marks of forgery, the law presumes to be genuine. That's right. It devolves on the opposing party the burden of proving it to be otherwise. The Bible meets, my comments continuing, every one of these requirements and, according to Simon Greenleaf himself, is thus to be considered genuine. 
Because of this, every word recorded concerning Jesus is to be held as valid and accepted as written. And further, I didn't say it, but it is a historical, as much as a theological commentary, and therefore every word is open to being presented to her. Not just when she says, well, that's, that's religious no. in nature. No, it doesn't matter. It is historical. Okay, her comment. He probably started his ministry in circa 28 AD. He never claimed to be the son of God. But a messenger preaching love, humility, and charity. My comment, by now I'm really angry. This is a lie. A lie. Try Matthew 16, 15, uh, 17. Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 15, and 17. Matthew. Um, it's just a bald-faced lie. And that's what she wants, is to introduce doubt into her little sheep. Okay, 16, 15 through 17 says, He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, so you know the passage. Mm -hmm. He didn't deny it. Okay, and then we'll try um, Luke twenty-two seventy, which says, I mean, among many others, I just whipped out two really quickly just for her, but, uh, uh, you know, you can go on all day with this type of stuff. But Luke 22, verse 70 says, Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. Okay, um, let's see here. Um, uh, let's see, Jesus, uh, her comments, also said that the Messiah would not have an earthly kingdom, but would bring about the end of the world at, the, at a day of judgment, which is also Persian, introducing doubts, right? Another lie, Matthew 19, 28, and Luke 22, 30. There will be a, a kingdom, all right? Let's go to one of them, Matthew 19, 28. I don't want people to think I'm just making stuff up. Matthew, like she is? Uh, well, yeah, like she is, 19... Um, uh, 28. I should have just written it out, well, but I didn't. She's she doesn't think any of her students read the Bible. Well, that's right. And she's relying on that. Matthew 28, just as the Son of Man did not... Um, why did I say that? 19... Uh, oh, I'm in 20. Got to be in the right chapter. 1928. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on thrones, 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, an earthly kingdom. Okay, um, let's see here, uh, her comments. Jesus of Nazareth believed that the end of the world was near. Lie. Therefore, when they had come together they, and they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is Acts 1, 6 through 8. Uh, and he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That doesn't sound like very near to me, folks. Um, and then she uh, goes on. And one had to follow Pharisaical law. This is what Jesus believed. And is seen practices to be saved. Why? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him and followed Pharisaical law and is seen practices no. will not perish. But it's, you know, stupid. She Stupid. Read the no, she's, she's she has up. read it. I know she, she knows these it. things. The Jesus Seminar knows every single word of the New Testament. They've read it, they've studied it, and they, they do stuff like they this to twist people away from it. it. Why because they're, they're, because they're filled with they're Satan. God the they're God haters. A, a bunch of... The guys, the, when you watch the History Channel, and uh -huh. they have the, 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 the wimpy little guy that talks like this, and they got about eight of them, they come on and they're specialists. And they say all these things that are totally wrong, and you're throwing your your uh, food at the TV. That's them. That's to Jesus somewhere. That's who they go to get their right interpretation of Jesus. Anyway, um, we'll go on. Um, in is seen. Anyway, John three sixteen is one of ten thousand verses that we could go to. I just gave that and ended it. Her comments in a scene. In essence, 
he was combining both orthodox and popular Judaism when he preached to the people. No, he wrote this and he was living it out, but I didn't say that. His message was really popular among the poor with its emphasis on salvation for all and equality before God. It was a message that was preached only to the Jews, however. So, here's my comments. False on several accounts and extremely biased in how it is presented. He never claimed that all are to be saved. He healed a Gentile in Luke 8 and told him to return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. That's Luke 8.39. He also healed other Gentiles, a Gentile woman's son, the son of a centurion, etc. Though not specifically appointed as a part of his ministry, he did do these things. Okay, her comment. The Jewish people thought that a Messiah was promised to them. Remember that they get this from the Persians. My comment, this is a total lie. They get this from their own Hebrew scriptures, which promise him about seven jillion times, beginning with Genesis 3, verse 16. Okay? Let me read it to you so you don't think I'm making that up. This, this is the first hint of this guy who would be coming to redeem the world. It says here, Genesis 3, 16. To the woman he said, I'm sorry, it's Genesis uh, 3, 15. I don't know why I put 16. <laughs> and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his Heal. I don't know why I said uh, uh, so 316 there. Genesis predates Persians. Genesis predates the Persians by a long shot. Let me get a pen here and change that. And um, um, I hope she uh, read what I, because I put the verse, I hope she read that before sending on. But anyway. Down everything you said because you got the verse by one verse, yeah. Um, okay, it's uh, beginning with Genesis 3.15, which is known as the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel, okay? And being repeated throughout their entire body of writings. Okay, we'll go on. Um, then her comment goes here, um, uh, continuing. But they expected this Messiah descended from the house of David. My comment is, duh. How can they have gotten this from the Persians, as previously claimed, if they expected him to be descended from David, who in their own records preceded the introduction of the Persians, right? right. So she's contradicting herself in one sentence. Did you uh, her, start with duh? Duh, yes it does. Um, uh, her, her comments going on. Um, would come in the form of a conquering king to kick Roman, Roman gluteus maximus and reestablish their kingdom. Hello, can we help you, ma'am? Oh, we can, can't we? Um, uh, okay, my comments. The expectation of the people was based on a faulty reading of their own writings, which clearly presented two aspects of the coming Messiah. The son of Joseph, the son of David. He would suffer for his people, and he would also be the king of their people. So, she picked one, th one thing, but not the other. Okay, uh, her comments. They were unprepared for an itinerant rabbi who said to turn the other cheek. So Jesus disappointed the radicals. He also frightened the Sadducees and the Pharisees, one, because he challenged traditional Judaic law, and two, because he threatened the Jewish ruling class, which were working with Romans. Under pressure from the Jewish elements of society, Pontius Pilate had Jesus of Nazareth uh, executed by crucifixion. Pilate, now, she just said the only two things that we can know about Jesus are um, that he was born in Nazareth and that he was crucified. But now she's saying the person that had him crucified. So she's... You see what I'm saying? She's adding in her own things, confirming things that she said we don't know. Anyway, um, we'll go on. Now, Pilate himself felt it was unnecessary. So did Herod Antipas. Scholars date the crucifixion in April sometime around 33 AD. My comments, see note above, 11 April AD 32. Um, going on with her comments. Crucifixion was the main method of Roman capital punishment. 
and fairly common in the Roman world. It was not a swift and painless death. Unlike later scenes of Jesus of Nazareth carrying a cross, prisoners only carried the cross beam to their place of execution. That's probably correct. Um, as poles were already planted in the ground, they just take a tree and attach them to that. Some people even speculate, speculation, okay, this isn't in the Bible, that it was an olive tree, okay? It's just speculation, but it's, it's probably a pretty good one. Anyway, um, it, it, and it would have to be just a, not a real high one, just off the ground, but anyway, um, just looking at references from the olive tree in the Bible, but it doesn't say that. Please don't make a squiggle on your brain. Um, anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Uh, unlike later scenes, I said that um, uh, the condemned were not, but there were also times that crosses were carried by people. There were crosses, there were cross beams, crosses were different. Some of them were X's, some of them were this. So, you know, we don't want to get off on that tangent. And if you're a uh, Jehovah's Witness, yeah, then you say that he died on a torture stake. Okay. Well, that, that kind of uh, gets rid of the, uh, he had a sign written above his head which said, right? I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses are way wrong. But anyway, it was a lentil that he was crucified on. Whether he carried the whole thing or just the lentil can be debated. Anyway, um, it was a cross when he was put on the cross. And the Old Testament shows us that again and again. I got a page on one of my old websites called Signs of the Cross, and they're in the Old Testament. It's very clear he died on a cross. God was telling us that way in advance. Anyway, um, uh, like, uh, let's hear. The condemned were not affixed to the cross beam through their palms. Now, why would somebody say this? Okay, I'm going to read the rest of it, and then I'm going to ask you to think this through. But through the tendons and muscles in their wrists. If you put a nail through the palm, it would just rip through the flesh, and the prisoner would flop over. Okay, well... Uh, that is true, a nail will pull out, and uh, so they, some, some people are scared, and they say that it's through the uh, wrist, and then they say, and the Hebrew word for hand actually covers the wrist as well as the hand. Big deal, okay? Let me tell you why this is important to me. This has been disproved where they found an actual crucifixion nail with a wood, piece of wood still attached to it, okay? The wood served as a means of ensuring that the nail would not tear through the hand. It's like a washer. It's like a washer on a bolt. That's exactly right. So it very well could have been through his hand. And that's why when it says through my hands and my feet and they say it wasn't through his hand, then people say, oh, the Bible is wrong. Well, it's not wrong. They've proved it through archaeology. It was through his hand. Wouldn't and even if it was through here, what? Wouldn't that be historical? That would be historical. Yes, oh it would. God. I'm sorry. We can't use historical stuff here. Um, okay. The wood served as a means of ensuring the nail would not tear through the hand. Uh, and I gave a, a reference. See, biblicalarchaeology.org where they have all of it, uh, pictures of it, and all of the details. Anyway, um, the cross beam would then be hoisted up onto the upright pole. Similarly, these are her comments, uh, a nail would be driven through the ankles, not the feet itself. Once again, trying to diminish the Bible. Ankles are a part of the feet. See Anatomy 101, that's my comment, right? Because she says they didn't go through the foot, they went through the ankle. Well, guess what? It's part of the foot. Hello! <laughs> I know, my feet are gross. Um, okay, so uh, we'll go on. Um, Rope would also be used, these are her comments, to secure the prisoner to the wood. This alone would not kill you, although the torture was excruciating. The idea was that the prisoner would linger for two or three days as an example to others. Then guards would come and break the prisoner's legs, or, uh, uh, and death would soon follow. The prisoner families would come and try to offer relief, opium-laced wine, water, etc., but this was illegal. Some prisoners were crucified upside down. The record of Mark, a historical record, says that Roman soldiers didn't allow only this, they offered it, oh, I didn't make that dark, and that, I should have put this for her. Um, she stopped with, I've got to make that bold, I'm sorry, gee whiz, I hope that uh, she knows that that's my comments. My comments begin here. 
um, because she said um, uh, opium-laced water, wine, etc. But this was illegal. Some prisoners were crucified upside down. Now my comments. The record of Mark, a historical record, says that the Roman soldiers didn't only allow people to come and give them something to drink. They offered it to those being executed. Here's what it says in Mark 15, 23. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, or gall. Yes, it's myrrh, which is gall. Uh, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. So I, I hope she sees those in my comments. And if she's already handed it in, sorry if she hasn't. I'll, I'll highlight that for her. Anyway, um, after his death, uh, Jesus of Nazareth's followers spread the word of his, re these are her comments, of his resurrection. And the Christian religion was born. The Romans, for the most part, viewed this new religion as a sect of Judaism, and it might have stayed that way except for Paul of Tarsus. Okay? Um, here's my comments. The book of Acts demonstrates consistently that Christianity was considered, anybody remember? Legal. Religio Lecita. That's right. Religio, you paid attention in the book of Acts. The book of Acts demonstrates consistently that Christianity was considered religio licita, or religio licita, if you pronounce it properly, a valid religion by the Roman Empire, which fell under the auspices of the Jewish faith. This carries through the entire book of Acts. Okay, next section, growth of Christianity. Paul of Tarsus was not one of the original 12 apostles, but um, he had an epiphany while traveling to Damascus and became a Christian. I inserted after but, but apparently... The book of Acts documents his conversion, so there is no apparently about it. He then confirms this transformation in his own writings, okay? Because she says apparently he had an epiphany. Well, no apparently about it. It's a historical record, as we've already determined by Simon Greenleaf. Um, her comments again, even more than that, Paul founded many of the tenets of Christianity and transformed into it into a universal religion. Because of Paul, Christianity wasn't limited to Judaism, but became a Greco-Roman religion, open to all, and he made Jesus divine. My comment, a lie. Jesus claimed his own divinity. We don't need to go any further. I was getting very short and very upset at this point, I tell you. Um, then she says, born of a virgin. A lie. He's, she's saying that Paul said that he was born of a virgin. Paul made that up. My comment, a lie. The book of Acts uh, Matthew and Luke testify that Mary was a virgin. Greek word Parthenos, people. Um, next one, Paul invented that he was descended from the house of David. My comment, a lie. Jesus is called the son of David innumerable times in the four Gospels. Um, she claimed that Paul laid the basis for original sin. What? <laughs> My comment, a lie. Original sin is indicated from Genesis chapter 3 on. It is expressly stated in, anybody know where it's expressly stated? In the Psalms, maybe? Maybe in the 51st Psalm? Right? Maybe in. Yes! Psalm 51 5. Say it again. Sin did my mother conceive. In sin did my mother. I was, from, I was sinful from my mother's womb. I was conceived in sin. I, that's a misquote, but that's what it says. So I don't need to go there. It is referred to throughout the Old Testament and by Jesus in John 3 18. Right? He who does not believe is. Condemned. condemned already. Thank you. Don't need to open it. Okay, so, lie, lie, okay? And then, Paul redefined the definition of chosen people to mean those who accept Jesus as Savior and put forth the idea of transubstantiation, uh, uh. <laughs> which is what the Roman Catholics teach about the bread and the water becoming, or bread and wine becoming actual body and blood of Jesus. Anyway, a lie. Paul never ceases to indicate the chosen status of 
Israel. She said, that's right, the Jews, thank you. Um, try reading Romans 9 through 11 is my comment. And he never mentions transubstantiation, which is a Catholic misinterpretation of the Lord's Supper. Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That is where the Lord's Supper is. It has nothing to do with transubstantiation. Okay, uh, her comments. Note that the Gospels were written after Paul's conversion and his own writings. By accepted dating, Mark alone can be fixed at such an early date. John was written long after Paul's death. Okay, so there we go. She's trying to one way say that, that, that the Gospels were written later, and then when she gets to the thing about Paul, she changes it. Okay, um, uh, we'll go on. It was important that Paul was a, her comments, was a Roman citizen. He was able to travel about the empire freely. Paul argued that the message, the good news, should not be limited to Jews, but that Jesus of Nazareth came to save all mankind and his death atoned for their sins of all humans. My comment, who accept the work of Jesus by faith, Romans 9, 10, 9, and 10. This is consistent with Jesus' own words, such as John 3, 16 and John 14, 6. In other words, he didn't, she's, she's misleading it by saying that everybody's saved. She's getting into universalism all of a sudden. She goes on and makes possible their salvation. Another Pauline concept. My comment, a complete lie. All right, after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, uh, Christians spread throughout the Mediterranean, taking their religion with them, since they believe that Judgment Day was any day now. Okay, my comment was an unknown date, as Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, see note above. Okay, and she goes on, it was important to convert as many people as possible so they could be saved. All right, Christianity was an urban movement. Rural areas tend to be very conservative and traditional. My comment, this makes no sense, and secondly, it's untrue. Okay? Anyway, every major, her comments, every major urban center in the empire had some sort of Christian community. At first, these Christian communities enjoyed much autonomy. They met at private homes or in secret hiding places to celebrate a love feast, which is agape, in commemoration of the Last Supper, also an idea of Paul's. My comment, this is incorrect. Paul never mentions the love feasts. They are mentioned once by Jude, the Lord's brother, in Jude 1, verse 12. Okay? She goes on. This will eventually evolve into the Mass. My comment, this is wholly incorrect. The two are completely disconnected. Okay, uh, her comments. The leader of these communities will, will known as bishops. That's not right. Anyway, um, were, known. Uh, were known. Yeah, but she said well known. Who based their authority on apostolic succession. My thought. Incorrect. Bishops are approved positions and have nothing to do with apostolic succession in a, in a biblical concept. See 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. So she's completely wrong about that. Um, she goes on, that they could trace their authority to one of the 12 apostles. My thought, again, this is incorrect from a biblical standpoint. Apples and oranges are being mixed here. She goes on, as one of the original apostles lays hands on the head of a successor and anoints the head with oil. My comment, the Bible never mentions anointing the head with oil for this purpose. That's an Old Testament. Well, even in the New, it does mention anointing people with oil when they're sick in James, but it doesn't say anything about for... for a bishops, etc. And how do you track, track your lineage back to the twelve apostles? You're if you're still Turkey, there at the time, or Italy, exactly. Or Greece, or Unless you're the Pope, then of course you do. No. Um, uh, okay, then she goes on. They transfer authority to that person, and so on. To this day, bishops try to keep in contact with each other, but these communities were spread out, so certain differences in dogma, liturgy, and practice arose. Is that not the truth? She got that one right. Um, let's see here. The Romans were pretty tolerant of other religions and even adopted a few. At first, they thought Christianity was part of Judaism. 
which was established in the empire. Roman attitudes towards Christianity changed swiftly, however, and the Christians were despised. That's true. Unusually, because uh, Romans had misconceptions about Christian practices, Christians worshipped in private, which freaked the Romans out. Can you imagine a professor writing that? And what they, what do they have to hide is the question. She inserts that there. What does he have to hide? Okay, anyway, we'll go on. I uh, yes, the she did. The reason why they hid was because they were persecuted. They were persecuted. That's there, right. There was no. She, she got it completely backwards. That's exactly right. Um, uh, they'll go on. They practice baby drowning, which what? is baptism. Yes, <laughs> cannibalism. This is what she's what? saying. No, this Being is what she's saying. The Romans believed about them, oh. but like he said, this is much later. But she's she's putting it in there to make it look like yeah. They practice baby drowning, cannibalism, incest. Uh, husbands and wives called each other's brother and sister in Christ. Mm -hmm. Just twisted, twisted. Uh, the worst, however, was their worship of the dead. Not only did they venerate a dead person, but when a uh, particularly holy Christian passed away, his or her garments, hair clippings, bones, etc., were venerated as relics. On their feast days, relics were taken out and prayed about. Christians prayed to these relics for intervention, mercy, favors. Uh, to the Romans, this was just plain disgusting. Here's my thought. The entire paragraph is completely inaccurate. Again, apples and oranges. These practices are not ever considered a part of scripture or Christian teaching until after the advent of the Holy Roman Empire. This is a historically inaccurate reading of the faith. Um, she goes on, Christian persecutions were sporadic in the Roman Empire until the third century. There was a large one during the reign of Nero when he needed a scapegoat for the fire that swept through Rome, but there was no real uh, state policy against the Christians. The persecutions that did happen were usually local and mob-oriented, which in a way is uh, much more dangerous and traumatic. My comment. There's no reason, I, no comment on the last paragraph because it's kind of correct, but um, uh, she gives at the very end a consolidation and a results, okay? Here's my comment. There's no reason to go to the either the consolidation or the results of this submission. It is a polemic against Christianity from the start. It is historically inaccurate. It has been de as has been demonstrated in the entire submission is to be rejected as a bastardization in the highest degree concerning what Christianity means. So I didn't she even set get, up a straw wow. man. So yeah, she that, shred it. That's she right. Set up another straw man. So so the Roman Catholic Church. Church. When did that start? Oh boy. Yeah. Well, if you're the Pope, it started with Peter. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. it didn't. <laughs> anyway, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you read that. Oh well, all I can say is that uh, so uh, this is this is very standard for what's taught in colleges. Really? When I went to to get my degree, the first thing I did is I went online and I went to the University of Phoenix because I thought, you know, I didn't know where to go to college or anything and I thought, well, I'll just, and I wrote to them and I, I was uh, asking about the theology and the lady that was in charge, the professor of theology, wrote me something almost identical to this. She said, really? you are never to discuss ultimate truth. This is in advance yeah. of me signing anything. She said, you are never to make a universal claim about um, a particular religion on and on, and I went back to her. I tore her apart, man. I, I went all over her. I said, I, 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 it, it was basically the same thing as this, but this is what's being taught in colleges all over America. It is no horrible. right to believe history. What? There's no right to believe no history. No right to believe history, and I'll tell you something, that, that not only do you not have a right to believe history, but you're not going to check the source anyway, so I've got you. That's why and, it's important as Christian kids or grandkids. Sure you are responsible for your family. As a matter of fact, what does it say in the book of Deuteronomy? It says, talk about the Lord when you walk on the wayside, and when you you know come in, and when you go out, and when you sit down, and when you rise, and on and on. Teach these things diligently. Because, because 
Exactly that right there. Okay, let's get into Romans 2, verse 3. Oh, shit. Here we go. Good job, Charlie. Yeah, well, I, I, I wish that I had checked. I was so mad by the time I was done. I, I, and I was tired. It was late at night, and I said to Hedico, I'll be done. I'll be at dinner when I get done with this. And I, I, I didn't highlight some things that I should have and a couple typos. So you blaming it on Hedico? No, I'm blaming it on me. I was, I was literally vain. There was, is one thing that they said I'd never heard before in my 40 years as a believer, that Jesus was baptized by his cousin. That's true. Yeah, it is true. And I've never heard that said as, mm -hmm. as his cousin. Yeah, well, that that's correct. He was his cousin, so yeah. there you go. What um, university? Phraseology. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I didn't want to know. Okay? Because I figure if I'm biased against this, I'm probably, you know, so all I did was she asked for some input. And, you know, from there, you do what you want with this, but... Uh, uh, that is what we have to face in this world. If you wonder another thing, why it's so important, and I know this is completely off, off topic, and please don't start talking about it. Let me make my comment, and we'll get into Romans 2-3. This is why it's so important that we get into uh, the right decision on Tuesdays, because that guy's going to be appointing judges, or that girl is going to be appointing judges that will make decisions about things like this, but in a political sphere. Okay, so please... If you can do, um, here we go. You Romans. Sent this to this gal. Oh, I sent it to her immediately. I was so I, I I don't wait on things. If I can answer an email, I answer it right then. And that's why I was late to dinner, and it was all it was already bedtime, and I was still. I said you're, you're just gonna have to wait. I I got to get this done. I was I was fuming by the time I got done, and that's why I didn't even read it. I just send. Did, oh. did you see anything she wrote about the other religions? No, and I don't want to. I don't want to see anything about it. But she said all she did was just give, like, from a textbook, an analysis. That She did tell me that. But I don't need to spend my time on that. I just wanted to give her some material to respond to. So, but anyway. they don't read any of the, the books. I mean, they don't. They just take an opinion from a teacher who wants to tell. Well, that's the problem. That's, that's why you have to get to the source. And that's why this girl is willing to get an F to stay in this class so that she's the other people Korean. know the truth. She, that's right. She wants the, the other students to know that she's be, they're being lied to. And that's why she asked me for help on this. Hats off to her. her. Okay. Um, Acts 2, verse 3. I'm sorry. Romans 2, verse 3. Yes. So, when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Do you? Do you? Wasn't that great? Did you enjoy that, that no, really 25 good. minutes? Oh, yeah. gosh. It was 40, 50 minutes. I'm, oh, wow. I'm glad that we did that because you all, if you need a copy of this, if you want to help defend somebody on that, email me, you know, or if you need help with something like that, that's what I'll do. I'll take my time. I don't want, you know, I don't like spending a lot of time answering emails of things that are simple, but something like this that's really important, I, I don't mind spending the time on it and I don't mind missing sleep for that. I do mind missing sleep though. Um, okay. Um, do you think that you'll escape judgment? Okay, Paul, this said this is a direct question from Paul to the Jews of his day. Remember what he I, I showed you is that he begins just by saying in uh, verse two, uh, two one, therefore you are inexcusable, O man. So it sounds like he's just speaking to anybody. But when we get down later in chapter two, we're gonna find that he's actually speaking to the Jews. Okay, and here's what he says. This is a direct question from Paul to the Jews of his day. There is a definite train of thought since verse one. Okay, here's the train of thought. One, when a person condemns another, it proves that they have a sense that an offense was committed. Right? Everybody got that? Mm -hmm. People say, you know, they, they steal. They go around and steal from other people, right? Doesn't bother them. But when you steal from them, all of a sudden it becomes an offense, right? I saw a video that came up on my stream today on Facebook, and it was just a picture of a black guy going up behind a guy on uh, 
um, oh, I'm sorry, it was on Mail Online. It wasn't on Facebook. And he went up behind a, an old guy, 69 years old in New York, and punched him in the head and walked away. And the guy died, right? And they, they're trying to find this guy. Well, you know, if somebody did it to his dad, it would suddenly become a, an offense. Uh, Black Lives Matter. Okay, um, so when a person condemns another, it proves that they have a sense that an offense was committed. If the one who condemns knows this and passes judgment, now think of the Jews, because Paul is setting them up. They know this, they've got the law, and they're going around and doing all these things. They, they pass judgment, but also commit the offense. Then they have no excuse for their actions. And that's all of us, we say, oh, that person shouldn't be speeding. Well, guess what, we've all sped. There's not a person here that hasn't sped. I've been next to Tom Elliott about 120 one day. What? Okay, that's not true. I'm lying. Anyway. Yeah, my nose is getting longer. Yeah, on this lawnmower. He was mowing a lawn at 120. Yeah, anyway, but you see, we've all sped. But when we're not in the mood for speeding, we're going normal, and somebody passes us, we get offended at it, right? Okay, we're proving something there. Paul's doing this to the Jewish people of his day. Two, God's judgment on those who commit transgressions is based on his nature. He is absolute truth, and therefore his judgment is perfect and must be executed equally in all. Now, think of it this way before I get into my verse. We have a standard. It's called the speed limit, right? That is the absolute standard. I, I'm, I'm saying that it should be. I'm, I'm not saying that it is because cops can wave that and whatever. The girl's pretty. I'll, I'll give you a, a warning this time. But the, the law is the law. It says 60 miles an hour, and it's posted. That is the standard. Okay, now think of God, who is the ultimate of all standards. Okay, there you go. So, Habakkuk says it very clearly in Habakkuk 1, verse 3. I've told you before, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the writer of commentaries on Romans. Yes. Riding with his wife, said his wife always drove him to his appointments. Right. And he said, I noticed that you adhered to the speed limit when it was 35, you did it in 45. She said, yes, I was worshiping the Lord with my blood. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, boy. Okay, Habakkuk 1, verse uh, 3, I think I said. Um, did I say? Th oh, 113. I'm sorry. 113. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and or iniquity and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Habakkuk is saying we're more righteous than the people that are judging us. Why don't you judge them? Okay, that's the premise of the book of Habakkuk, and it takes a while to get to the end. But um, Habakkuk does get his answer in a, a kind of a way. But anyway, um, it, he cannot look on evil in any sort, way, or form. Now, that doesn't mean, now let's think about this, because God uses evil in order to effect good. What you thought was evil and uh, what you saw as evil, uh, God was using to save many people alive when they sold Joseph off, right? Okay, they sold him off, and God used that for good. God doesn't condone the evil, but he uses it to make something happen. And this is the way that God works, all the way through the Bible. He's not the author of evil. He never is. And sometimes, I'm going to tell you, sometimes we ascribe things as evil that really aren't evil because we think they're bad, right? Death, well, that's evil. Well, guess what? God is the author of death, and it isn't evil. It keeps us from becoming infinitely wicked creatures because death cuts our time short. Just look at the uh, Genesis um, uh, 1 through 5 and 6. Uh, wickedness was on the world and the Lord decided that he was going to destroy the world. Those people lived 900 years. We can produce enough wickedness in Adolf Hitler at 54 years old to kill millions of people, right? 
These people lived 900 years old. Okay, God cut their our lives short out of mercy. So we look at death as evil, and in fact, it may very well not be evil. Okay, um, and he had to stop all life on earth except eight people at the year 1656 Anno, I'm sorry, yeah, Anno Mundi from the creation of the world because wickedness was so bad after 1656 years. Now imagine, we've been going since Christ for 2,000 years and we're pretty wicked. None of us have lived more than about 110 or 20 years at the most, right? And most of us much less than that. We can produce a lot of wickedness in a short amount of time. Um, anyway, have one language. One language, one that's language, right. And you live in 900 years? Oh, yeah, there's that's, no resistance. No resistance. No resistance at all. You're absolutely right about that. So we have, we've got real problem uh, with sometimes perceiving things as evil that aren't. Um, it, let me read you a verse, and I may have said this one recently. I don't know if it was in this class or not, but it's, I think I may have read it last week in this class, but if I didn't, then it was in another. another. But here's what it says, Isaiah 57, verse 1, The righteous perishes... And no one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away. Well, no one, no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Somebody may die early. Actually, it's a, a, an act of mercy, so he doesn't have to see the evil that maybe his children are going to do or that is going to befall his country or something like that. So just because we see something as evil doesn't mean that it actually is. So, um, And that's where things, again, just like that professor kind of twists things. That's right. A lot of people will say, well, that's bad, but it's God's will. It's like, no. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'm like like people getting killed for their Christianity in uh, the Middle East. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's good that will come, come out of it, and that, God will use like, that. You, know, you should stop that. You should, like, that's you know, right. Like, it, it's evil that is being perpetrated upon those people. Right. But... Um, God will use it all for good. And if this goes to, uh, I'm here cleaning today. I got here about one and the iPad rang and I didn't know who it was. So I hit re return call and it was the people that were calling me that called a couple weeks ago. And, and my friend who I went up in January to see her because I thought she, she wasn't going to make it another month. And her daughter was supposed to get married in March and they didn't think she'd make it that long. And she's still alive. Wow. But today they called, she can't speak anymore. She can't move her arms. And they, she, she, they said, uh, we, we just got questions and, um, uh, you know, the son is really struggling with it. The husband is struggling with it. And um, we talked about these issues. You know, you've had a year with her that you wouldn't have otherwise had. So good came out of that. One of the family members has come much closer to the Lord. Good has come out of that. So we've got to look at the good, even in the bad. And um, it, what, the reason why they called is because she's saying she thinks it's time for her to go into hospice. She says, I just know it. And so uh, that may be my last conversation with her. We'll see. But a very good friend and somebody that I'll be very happy to see again in a better circumstances. But um, so I can call you on your right. Okay. No, you can't. <laughs> I, th th there's only about two people that know my iPad number, and I, I, I uh, Sergio, yes, because he's always helping me out technically, and then them because they I needed to contact them when I went up to uh, meet them. But I, I don't like talking on the iPad anymore. I like talking on the phone. I like I like talking with my fingers. What? Yeah, you just hold it out your lap. But I, I I like talking with my fingers. Somebody emailed me and he had a bunch of questions and he says, "Can you send me your phone number so we can talk?" And I went back and I said, "No, no, 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 no. I don't even like to talk to my wife and children on the phone. I I do. I'll pick it up if it's them. But I really don't like talking on the phone because I I, I like to be able to think while I'm." 
typing something, especially if it's a matter of theology or if it's a matter of, you know, somebody needing counsel, you bet. I'd rather, or talk to them face-to-face, -face, you know, and not iPad face-to-face -face, where there's things, fans spinning around above them and, oh boy. Anyway, so the answer is no. Um, uh, so, um, uh, okay, three, we've done one and two, three. Therefore, the person, because the person who condemns does so when they know an action is wrong, and yet they commit the same type of actions, how can they expect to escape God's judgment? It would be unthinkable based on the standard of truth which defines who he is. So we have those three precepts that Paul is trying to get us to think through. All right? The Jew standing in judgment of the Gentile actually condemns himself in his decision. Once again, they don't know that he's writing to them yet. He's just writing in general, but he's going to later introduce them and say, I've been talking to you folks. <clears throat> what brought about his accusation of them, God's law, of which he was the steward, meaning the Jew, is what brings his own condemnation. The Jew is without excuse. However, a point that should not be missed is that as time has passed, the question now appro appropriately belongs to Christians as well. At the very beginning, this didn't belong to new believers in Christ. But now we've been the carrier of the banner for 2,000 years. There was a point where the onus came on to us. It's no longer on the Jew. <clears throat> when Israel was exiled for their disobedience and their rejection of Christ, the Gentile world became the steward not only of God's Old Testament law, but the gospel of Christ as well. Now the logic of verses 1 through 3, which Paul writes, points a finger directly at the church. How can we stand in judgment of others if we fail to pronounce the gospel? How can we do it? If we keep it secret and yet condemn others for being heathen or unconverted Jews, then aren't we doing exactly the same? We're doing exactly what Paul is condemning the Jews about because we have the secret to them turning from what they're doing. We have the secret, the guy that's driving, Tom who's driving his lawnmower at 100 miles an hour, all I have is to say, there's the speed limit, slow down that lawnmower, right? Here it is, okay? So we've got to make sure that when we, you know, I, I, I get down on people on Facebook and during the prophecy updates, but I'd be willing to talk to any one of them that I really despise about Jesus. If I could go up to the White House and talk to him, I would. It's not gonna happen, so I'm just gonna talk bad about the guy, but anyway, um, but I would. And he's, you know, he's sat in church. How long? Many years, right? It wasn't a very good church. He claims that he's a Christian, but if he, he got his theology from right. I'm sorry. He, he's, we just have to remember that for the grace of God, there go. That's right. There go I. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, later in Romans 11, we will come upon a passage which is speaking of the mystery of the Jewish exile and the grafting in of the church. This is seen in Romans 11, 30 through 32. Let me read you that just so that I don't want to get ahead in Romans except to highlight this to you. Romans 11, 30 through 32, which says, um, uh, For as you were once disobedience to God, because this is points to what Paul is trying to relate to the Jews right now, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, meaning the Jews, that through the mercy shown you, they may obtain mercy. For God has committed them uh, committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Okay? So Paul is writing to the Jew now, but he's using it as an example of everybody at one point or another in their relation to God and their relation to law. Whatever law. Speed limit, Bible, whatever. Okay? Um, if we err 
or I'm sorry, we err if we point our fingers at the Jews and say how stupid they are for having rejected the Lord in his cross. We, were that not to have happened, guess what? We wouldn't be sitting here right now. Right. We would not be the Gentile That's called out church. And also, he the shoots a hole in the replacement, replacement theology. theology. That's exactly right he does. Mm -hmm. Shoots a hole right through it. But we would not be here. The kingdom would have been ushered in at the time if they had called on Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so we can't go pointing our fingers too far. Remember the old saying, I don't know if you've ever heard this one, but when you point at somebody, there's three <laughs> fingers pointing back at you. Okay, who, remember that. Who tells us that all the time? I don't know. In the projects? Uh, uh, yes. Oh, uh, Warren. Warren. Yeah, yeah. And he says, um, uh, um, he'll also say, um, uh, the devil's in your house and there ain't nobody in there but you. <laughs> He says that all the time. Um, okay. He's a really nice guy. He's a special soul. Um, were that not to have uh, happened, the church, as we know, would have never come into existence, speaking of the uh, Jews' rejection of Jesus. But God, in his infinite wisdom, blinded them in part so that salvation might come to the Gentile people of the world. Let us not be so arrogant against our unbelieving Jewish brethren, but let us pray for them and pray for their eyes to be open to the glorious gospel which saves all men. Okay, and as I've said, and I say it from time to time, they're my very last prayer every single night, and I've got a list of people I pray for every night. It's about as long as my arm, and about half of them are Jews. I just have tons of Jewish friends that I've talked to about Jesus, and not one of them, not one of them has responded. And Paul's shaking his head. He knows the same thing. I, I, it's the most frustrating thing in the world to me that, uh, uh, gosh, the day I was ordained and three of my sermons, a Jewish friend that I grew up with came to watch all of them. And then he or she, I won't say what, came into the church one day to say hi while I was cleaning because he or she was dropping off a uh, uh, something over at the, the place across the way, so the dry cleaners. And um, uh, they said, right in this church. Oh, well, that only applies to everybody else. We Jews get a free ticket to heaven. And I had preached oh, the gospel to this person three or four times. And I, you know, I post every single day about Jesus, my prayer on Facebook. She reads them, says, oh, great. She doesn't believe a thing. Doesn't believe a thing. It goes in one ear and out the other. I've had no success. I know they are. But you have to be, the blinding is to the word of God. And these, most Jews don't even read the word of God. So they are, they are just. Unlike us Christians. Oh, yeah. And they, yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, life application from this verse. Uh, and we got time, yeah. The times are coming to their fulfillment, and Jesus Christ's return is closer each day. By Jesus' own words, he has promised to return his people, Israel, to their capital, Jerusalem. The church age will end, and then will come the tribulation period. At the end of that time, Jesus will return to set up his millennial kingdom from Jerusalem. Uh, let your daily prayers reflect a desire for Israel's eyes to be open to their long-rejected Messiah, Jesus. All right, let me uh, read something really quickly here. Oh, okay, that was right. I thought I had a typo in there. I didn't. Um, okay, 2-4. Oh. I know, we're getting two verses and the thing on college courses. And, excuse me, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, patience, not realizing... God's kindness leads you towards repentance. Okay. Kind of close to mine. Um, an alternative to what was just presented is now given. Or, right? Paul has been speaking about those who condemn others and yet are guilty of practicing the very sins which they condemn in them. And so he asks, or do you despise 
This is in the indicative mood, and it therefore requires the answer, yes, in fact, you do. Okay? The idea is that these people had been shown the unmerited favor of God, and yet despised it by becoming ungrateful of it, and then even expecting that it should continue because they somehow deserved it. Like I said in the sermon a few weeks ago, if you believe you have your own righteousness, imputed righteousness means nothing to you. And the Jews walk around thinking that they are righteous because they are Jews. And so they don't need imputed righteousness of Christ. All right? Um, this is a sediment of Luke 13, 1 through 5, which Jesus forcefully corrects. Luke 13, 1 through 5. Is that what I said? Luke 13, 1 through 5. There were present at that time, at that season, some who were who told them about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. And that's, he's trying to give them a clue that calamity doesn't mean that always God's disfavor. I mean, every time there's an earthquake on this planet or a hurricane or, uh, you know, somebody sneezes on somebody else, prophecy sites light up. Prophecy before our eyes. Jesus is judging Italy, right? I, I'm telling I, I, you, see it all day, every day by people saying these type of things, Okay. Sometimes things just happen because this is the world that we live in. It doesn't mean that God is... Now, I will admit that there are times when uh, God will use weather to wake us up. And I talked about that one book, and I think I said um, uh, Koenig is his last name, and I said um, uh, William Koenig instead it's of... Will, um, it's Bill. Bill Koenig. Okay, so it is Bill but I said um, Walter Koenig, and that was the guy from Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, Chekhov. And, or was it Chekhov or Walter Koenig? Anyway, yeah. Um, and so it is. It's Bill Koenig. And he shows a definite pattern of judgment because of weather. But that doesn't mean that every time a building falls over or every time there's an earthquake that there's judgment on it. And I said during one Prophecy Update one time that there was this Christian pastor that was saying that all of these floods in this one part of America were because God was judging the homosexuals. And then his house got flooded, oh. right? Yeah, so you have to be careful when you go relating calamity to God's judgment. Sometimes it's just part of the world which we live in. People get run over, people die. Be careful with that and you sense. God may bring judgment to an area, but the righteous perish with the... That's right, the righteous perish with the, the evil. I mean, he may judge... All the way through Israel's history that is shown. We know that the innocent suffer. That's exactly right. So we got to be careful with that. And, not, uh, and this is what Paul is writing about, and Jesus just spoke about it. We can't go pointing fingers at people and saying yeah, this we when we're very well susceptible. Um, those who came to him intim intimated that the Galileans must have been pretty big sinners to have Pilate mingle their blood with his sacrifices. Oh, look, at they must be bad guys, right? Okay. Jesus turned around and brought their fallen state to mind. God had been abundant in his riches to them, and they had trampled on this grace by expecting it to continue on ad infinitum regardless of their conduct, meaning the Jewish people as a whole. Even to this day, they act like they are due God's favor, and then they don't believe in the God that they believe they're due his favor, right? It, 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 it's crazy, but this is all over the world. This, Jews are a microcosm 
of the whole world. That's why okay? they're the chosen people. That's why they're the chosen they people. just like the rest of us. That's, they're just like the rest of us, but more. Okay? And Charlie, it bothers me when our leaders say, we're an exceptional people, because we're not. We had an exceptional God who yes. we believed in. And we were, and we were an exceptional people right. when we called on the Lord. We were. We were. More, more and we, we are not now, because our leader has made us unexceptional. And that's what people teaching like that. In well, that's right. You get, it, well, it all stems from the morality in a government or a, in a nation. It stems from. And I don't want to get into a government talk no, here, but, but the leaders set the 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 tone for the nation. The preachers. This is something you have to understand. Now, it used to be if you go to the old newspapers, and I'm talking 50 and 60 years ago, not very long ago, Sunday they would publish the sermons of all the churches in the town. You can go to the Old Hero Tribune, you can go to the New York Times, you can go all over, and they put in the sermons. This was something that was allowed. This was something that people wanted to know. What did this church say and what did this church say? Well, it came out that the government, because we are a government within a... Uh, they established the policy in this country, and they start saying there's a separation between um, state and government, right? Well, the church, church will naturally follow that. Yeah, church and government. Thank you. Um, whatever I said, I meant, I, you know what I meant. Anyway, so, but what I'm saying is it is the government that started us down that path, and pretty soon the newspaper started to fall away. Everything else fell away from there, okay? It's not that the churches weren't doing their job. They were in there preaching their, and their sermons were being published. It's that the government started to pull people away from that. Okay, and so we can't disassociate ourselves as Christians in whatever country we are in from the government under which we live. Especially if we don't stand up against it. When it's, when that's it's right, but that's what I'm saying. That, that, and that's where does that come from? It comes from who do we elect to run us? Mm -hmm. And if we continue down the path we're on, we're just going to continue to go further and further away. That's all there is to it. We have responsibilities as citizens, and we saw that all the way through the Book of Acts. Okay, let's go on. Um, uh, oh, perfect. America's had this attitude for far too long. Good job, Charlie. Because we have been so richly blessed when calamity falls, such as 911, let me put a dash in there, um, uh, we try to project it on the wickedness of others and not look at it as deserved judgment. I remember after 9-11, uh, Pat Robertson and one other famous, Jerry Falwell, both stood up and they said, this is because we have turned away from our God and we have been judged by God. And do you know that both of them later recanted of that because they got so much heat? They both said, well, I didn't really mean it the way I meant it. They yeah. should have stuck with their guns. But the people of America wanted to say, I had somebody, and Tom knows who I'm talking about, somebody leave the Bible class over at Grace because, and yeah, you know who I'm talking about too, because I said that it was judgment on America. I wasn't willing to waffle like well, they were. I don't understand what is wrong with saying that. It's true. Because people want to believe that we're superior, exactly what she was just saying. saying we are, we deserve God's favor, just like the Jews do. People. I don't understand why. I know the tell, person. No, I don't understand listen, why you got angry. Tell, tell the Jews that they deserved what they've gotten for the past 2,000 years, and, okay. right? Yeah, Same thing. It says in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 exactly what would happen to them throughout their history. Exactly. If they didn't respond. Tell that to a Jew and see if they ever talk to you again. Yeah, One word. True. They will never do it. And it's the same thing with American exceptionalism. We don't deserve that because we're special. No. Okay? So that's what I'm saying. Um, we try to project it on the wickedness of others and not look at it as deserved judgment. 
Anyone who speaks out against moral impurity is sure to get an earful from them who either dismiss the judgment of God or who only see their own perceived moral flawlessness and not a nation ripe for God's punishing hand. Okay? That's what you're going to get from people like that. We don't deserve that, but and yes, the truth we do. Is that any sin, one sin is one sin. Than another. <laughs> one sin separates all, you infinitely you know, from like an say, infinite oh, creator. That's that's right in the book of James. If you err in one part of the law, the law is broken. That's right. That is it. It's, you know, I, I it, that is all there is to it. It is one unified law. Every single commandment in the law of Moses, and there are six hundred and thirteen of them. Hmm. Every one of them. One of them will cause you to be separated from God. 613 of them. Don't eat this. you got to do this. Show up in Jerusalem on this, this day and do this thing. It is all one. I had a person actually ask me about that this week. He was uh, saying, well, what about the, the Ten Commandments? Isn't that the embodiment of the law? Yes, it is. And then from that, there's an embodiment of that. Love your God, love your neighbor, right? So there's, there, there's this stream that flows down, but every part of the law of Moses falls under the Ten Commandments. Okay, so let me take you, just so people understand this, because he was, he was curious, he says, I'm trying to get my head around this. What about these lesser commandments within the law? Deuteronomy chapter 5 answers this. He goes through, hear, O Israel, here are the, the things that happened. I talked to you, the Lord talked to you on the mountain. He goes through the Ten Commandments. Get down to um, verse 23. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes, he's repeating what happened in Exodus 20, and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord, our God, has shown us his his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord, our God, any more than we shall die. For who is there? And I'm going to go down a little further. Um, verse 27, you go near and hear all that the Lord God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you, and we will hear it and do it. Okay? Then he goes down a little further, and he says to them, um, verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it may be well with them and with their children forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them. The Ten Commandments have just been told. They said, don't let him speak to us anymore. Tell us what he expects, and we'll do it. And he goes on, and he says, these things I expect. It's all the law of Moses. We can't say it's only the Ten Commandments and not all of this. It is one unified whole. He goes on, and he says, "Um, uh, therefore you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you that you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Now, his question was, well, what if Jesus didn't... Um, he wasn't saying that Jesus sinned. So don't misunderstand me and get a guess. What if there was one of the commandments that Jesus didn't do? In other words, there's priestly commandments that apply to the priests, Okay doesn't matter. He didn't have to fulfill all 613 of those commandments. He had to not sin under any of them that applied to him, right? He's not a priest, so he's not going to do one of the priestly things, okay? But he never sinned under what was he was had an onus on him to do. And that is what he did. All of he never ate pork. He always wore uh, his garments with the uh the seat seat on the end with the blue string in it. And all the things that the law demanded, he fulfilled. It doesn't mean he did every one of them. 
because some of them didn't pertain, but he, everyone that he was supposed to, he never violated, okay? It is one unified whole. Jesus embodies the law typified by the Ten Commandments, which is then typified by love your God, love your neighbor. Okay, here we go. Um, uh, okay. Sure. Yes. He was high priest. No, 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 no. Well, no, 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 no. He was a rabbi. No, he was not high priest under the Old Covenant. There you go. I want to make sure we don't introduce something that people are going to get mistaken about. He is our high priest. Yes. Under the new covenant, he presented his blood. He fulfilled the old, and then he went and he presented his blood in satisfaction of the law, and he established the new in his blood. So, yes, I, I just want to make sure that people don't think, well, wait a minute, because he didn't do all of the things priests were required to do. So we got to be be careful. He's right. Christ is our high priest, but under the new covenant, not under the old. Under the old, there were certain things that the priests had to do. Do this, do this, do this. Okay, he didn't do those things because it didn't pertain to him as high priest of the law. He was high priest of the new covenant. So he's right, but I just want to qualify that so that nobody gets something yeah, in there. He that said he took his own blood. Not that's right. Did, but the, the, the blood of his was satisfaction of the old yeah. presenting. Th there you go. Okay. So, um, and that's Romans 7 through 9 in particular. It speaks of that. Romans, I, I'm sorry, Hebrews. Hebrews 7 through 9 in particular. What a book. Um, wow. Wow. Hebrews. Hebrews. The what? Hebrews and Romans. Uh, the, Hebrews and Romans. Uh, Les Feldick will probably agree with this. I know he says Romans, but I will say Romans and Hebrews. If you read those two books ten times straight through, Romans and Hebrews, Romans and read them ten times, you will have more theology than 99.999% of all pastors, preachers, and scholars that have ever existed. You know those books, you know what they say, and how... Romans is the constitution of Christianity. How are we going to govern our lives in the Gentile-led church age? What is coming at the end of that church age, etc.? Hebrews defines Christ's, uh, Christ's roles of better than. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's better than the high priest. He's be Aaron. He's better than, better than, better than. What is he doing for us? How does it pertain to us? And believe it or not, it's written to the Hebrews, not to us. Okay, But it defines what Christ did in fulfillment of this and what he is doing for us right now. Wonderful book. Romans and Hebrews, ten times, and then go back and read him again. Okay, um, uh, here we go. God's punishing hand was the last thing I was talking about, America. The riches of God, Paul notes, are one, his goodness. Now, he gave different words. I'll read you what minds of goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, okay? Um, his goodness. This is his benign nature. He is a compassionate God who is in no way arbitrary or vindictive. Remember, I've said this before. If he was arbitrary or if he was vindictive, that means there would be a change in him and it wouldn't be the God of the Bible. There's no change in God. He is completely unchanging in his nature. Okay? Um, uh, two, his forbearance. This reflects God's restraint. When judgment would be expected under almost any conceivable circumstance... He still withholds his wrath, understanding that we are prone to sin from birth. Okay? Uh, that sermon I did about three or four weeks ago when he proclaimed the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, long-suffering and gracious and merciful, and um, go watch that sermon if you, if you haven't, and you will understand the nature and character of God much, much better. Okay, that was um, Exodus, what? 34. Exodus 34, where the Lord passes before Moses and proclaims his name. This is, Paul is repeating this here, but that was a detailed sermon. This is just a brushstroke here. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, 
his forbearance, when judgment would be expected. I've said that uh, almost any conceivable circumstance, he still withholds his wrath, understanding that we are prone to sin from birth. Bible acknowledges that right from the beginning. Um, three, because of his forbearance, he is also long-suffering. This concept shows that he not only does not only does he withhold his wrath, but he is also slow to anger. Oh, and I quote it, as is noted in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Let me read it to you, exactly that, what that sermon is based on. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Um, in the Hebrew where it says, um, um, uh, which one is it, long-suffering and um, slow to anger, it, the word is nostrils. In other words, <clears throat> you, you know, you're in a huff and your nostrils flare. It uses that word to describe him. He's slow to letting his nostrils flare. Anyway, um, these are the riches which the people were despising. They looked at the world around them as fallen and ripe for judgment, and yet they thought they had a free pass to act in the same manner with no expected repercussions. But Paul says that these riches of his goodness were meant not to promote license, but to lead them to repentance. He will take this concept and refine it in the chapters ahead. In chapter 6, we're going to read this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. God forbid. That's right. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? God's grace is shown in the goodness of his riches. So why can't we continue to sin in order for his grace to be seen in an even greater light? This is the perverse nature of man, looking for a way to excuse or even justify that which is contrary to normal order. God's glorified through my sin. Why can't I just sin more? Go up to Hillsong in New York City, and that's probably what he's teaching today, okay? Um, uh, it's contrary to normal order, contrary to right thinking, and contrary to holy living. Let us never presume upon the goodness of the Lord in this manner. Life application, and we'll be done, because we're done. Um, do you look at yourself as of high value? Do you perceive others as sinful, whereas you are guilt-free? <laughs> what about the society in which you live, America, right? He has prosperity led you to believe that you are God's favored. Joel Olstein would say so. Okay. And chosen and that you can therefore act in any way that you wish. Let us never assume that we can flagrantly sin and be excused when we do so. Because that's what the prosperity gospel is all about. I hate to tell you, if somebody is telling you that God wants you to prosper, he hasn't read his Bible. He does want you to prosper, but there has to be a teaching that God doesn't just want you to prosper. He wants you to prosper because you're being obedient to him. And they fail to say that. They fail to mention the word S-I-N. And at the end, they fail to make a, a appeal to people to call on the name of J-E-S-U-S, -S, which is what we're going to do right now, Burke, please. Lord, your word is just wonderful. Be joy in it. Just enlarge our vision. That is each that we faithful witness for walk in everything that we do. Lecture. You would be the hearts of all of her do right. Amen.
we had a little poem in there. You said what you would do, and then something about <clears throat> thanks to you or something. It was pretty good. <laughs> All right. Oh yeah, let's. Uh, we don't want to forget this. Hang on. Get ready to say goodbye to the folks online. Um, break. And it says it's still live. It says it's working. Backing up. And okay, here we go. We love you. All right. Have a wonderful week. Hope to see you again next week. Same time, same bat station.